Well, we're, uh, as I said, we're studying Exodus in these uh, morning services just now, so we're going to read now beginning at Exodus chapter 2 and verse 23. If you're using one of the church Bibles uh, from the door there, this is on page 46. But Exodus chapter 2. Last time we saw Moses flee from Egypt. Moses killed the Egyptian and then flee from Egypt to Midian and settle there, as it would turn out, for 40 years. So we pick up now at uh, Exodus 2 from verse 23. Let's uh, read and hear together God's Word. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Now, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, And have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land. A land flowing with milk and honey. To the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Amen. May God bless to us the reading of his word. Well, do please turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 2. As you do that, let us pray. Almighty and ever gracious God, since all our salvation depends upon your holy word. Grant, therefore, that our hearts may be set free from worldly things so that we may, with diligence and faith, hear your word, rightly understand your gracious will, and in all sincerity live according to the same, to your praise and glory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, hindsight is a a wonderful thing, isn't it? As we cast our eyes back over the events in our lives, we we see often with fresh perspective how the events have unfolded. We realize that our our experiences, both good and bad, 
have made us into the person we are today. We can sometimes see, sometimes, not all, sometimes we can see the good that has come from the bad. And if you're a Christian here today, as you, as you look back and see amidst the sorrow and difficulty of life, you see, I hope, how the Lord has kept you. How despite the ups and downs, we see freshly and powerfully God's grace to us. Maybe you can think of people and places and tough times that the Lord has brought you through and from which you've learned to trust the Lord more and more. Maybe, or, or maybe you can't as you look back. But the thing is, when we're in the midst of life, in the midst of sorrow, of tragedy, of the battle, it's not easy, is it, to find hindsight? It's not easy to have perspective. When we're facing sorrows and pains, we don't easily see, do we, how this will all work out. So in the midst of our struggles and sorrows, in the midst of pressures of work and family, when we can get the perspective in the midst of the maelstrom of life, when we can't see how the Lord has worked, how do we keep trusting? How do we keep following? And I imagine those might have been the thoughts that would have been going through the minds of God's people in Egypt. Their ancestors had moved to Egypt to flee famine. But ultimately, all they found there in due course was vile treatment. They were made to be slaves. They were put to hard toil and labor. They faced the murder of their newborn sons. Hope and perspective would have been hard to find for those folk. Where could they get it? Many of them would have known nothing but such appalling treatment. Although in the narrative of Exodus 1 and 2, we see evident signs of God's faithfulness, and our, atten our attention is drawn to this man, Moses, we, we have to wonder though, don't we, would they have seen all of this? We, as we read the narrative, see it. But would they have seen it? Would these, these people have been able to see God being at work? Of course, when they saw God's salvation, when they were taken up out of the land, they would have seen God's saving power. And as they stood on the plains of Moab about to go over into the promised land, they would have known many years later of God's power and how he had brought them thus far, how he delivered and saved but that's not where we find them in these pages. These people are in the pit. They are waist deep in sorrow and struggle. But as we read, and as God's people would have remembered and been reminded of many years later, this is where the story of salvation really starts to take shape. For it's here in these this passage that we see God burst onto the stage of the story. No longer do we discern his actions, but we hear him speak. Now he comes and he takes center stage. And as he does so in this passage, we'll see three things. Firstly, we see in verses 23 to 25, we see that he knows our sorrows. He knows our sorrows. Now, back when kings were kings, 
and not constitutional monarchs? What might we hope for when a king died and his son, or let's be fair, his daughter took his place? Well, if we were so inclined, we might hope that the new younger king might change his policy. He might um, decide not to persecute this bunch of people. He might persecute the other lot. Who's to know? He, he might change direction. He might ditch some of his dad's old rotten advisors and, and get new young ones. He might let certain political prisoners go free. He might seem more magnanimous. Such was the way of things when kings were kings. But that's not what happens, is it, for God's people in verse 23. During this period of time of Moses being in exile in Midian, the king of Egypt, the great and powerful Pharaoh, dies. Like all of us, this king could not escape death. He could not escape the inevitability of it. But the death of this king, and we presume the installation of a new monarch, doesn't bring glad tidings to God's people. In fact, nothing changes. They are still in their bondage. They are still being ruthlessly treated and living lives of bitter, hard service. It's it's very difficult for us to imagine what that must have been like. We live in such privilege in our world today. Even the hardships that we experience in our country would have been nothing like what they experienced in ancient Egypt. And it is this continued suffering that they're experiencing this failure of change when the old king dies that drives God's people out to pray, verse 23, that they cry out for help. And it's interesting to note um, that this is the first time in the narrative of Exodus that they do so, that God's people cry out for help. Why they only cry out at this point in the narrative is not clear, but I don't think it's really important. But rather, what is important is that their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And verse 24, God heard their groaning. These people who are facing appalling tragedy and suffering cry out, and their God, the Lord, hears. Of course, they would not at that time have known that he heard. There was no obvious answer. But what Moses, as he writes this book of Exodus, wants his readers to hear And to be clear about it is that these people cried out to God and God heard. Their prayers, although it might have seemed that God had not heard, were in fact heard. They got through to him. It's sort of very, sort of drawn, sort of a a wonderful picture, isn't it? Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. God hears their groaning, verse 24, and and sees them and knows their situation, verse 25. He's not unaware. He is not deaf. He is not blind to what his his people are suffering. And he also, we see in verse 24, remembers his covenant with their forefathers. Verse 24. These were solemn oaths, promises to bless and to prosper, to give his people a land. And when we read that God remembers, it's of course not just a calling to mind, but it's um, a prelude to action. So God knows their suffering and he will act in line with his promises, his covenant word. And we should say also that this doesn't mean that God changes in any way, shape or form. He is not changeable. 
that he was one moment sitting in heaven, minding his own business, and then suddenly went, oh, my word, my people, they're suffering. I better do something about it. I wasn't planning to do anything about it, but now I will. No, God does not change. He is not surprised. He does not change his plans. He does not change his mind. What we have here is God portraying himself in a way that is accommodated to our reason. It is a mystery how the unchangeable God responds to the cries of his people. We do not understand it. But we must not think that this passage describes change in God. God has not been coerced or convinced to act, but portrays himself as such that he does hear, he does know, he does act for his people in line with his promises so that we know that he does. And if it's true of God's people then, that God heard, he saw, he knew, their suffering. It is also surely true for us now. God knows our sufferings and our sorrows. I don't know what you're going through at the moment, what struggles you might be facing, what sorrows you may have experienced over this past week or month. But when we pray to him, he hears He sees our situation. He is intimately aware of our struggles and sorrows. He knows. And he will answer in line with his covenant promises. We might not see how our prayers are answered. But we must never in any way, shape or form doubt that they are heard. For as we suffer, as we struggle in life, and as we we call out to God... He hears, he sees, he knows, and he answers. He is not deaf, he is not inactive. He acts for his people, and that is what we see in the following 10 verses of chapter 3. As he steps onto the stage of the narrative, the first thing we see in these verses, in verses 1 to 6, is that he makes himself known. He makes himself known. Now, people in in life often use images to to grab people's attention, don't we? We see this in marketing and in adverts. Just think of a TV advert for Visit Scotland. Maybe you've seen some of those. I'm sure I've seen them at the cinema where you see an advert for Visit Scotland and you see beautiful pictures of hills, beautifully shot with autumnal colours or you'll You'll see vistas of Georgian architecture. In fact, if you're walking through parts of Edinburgh or Glasgow Airport, you just cannot avoid it. Those images are everywhere. All designed to make you want to know more about this mysterious place called Scotland. And that's why shop windows have displays. As you walk past them, they want to draw you in. They want you to come in and say, and buy what they're selling at the windows. They they put these extravagant displays on on show so that we'll look at them and think, wow, I could do with a fifth pair of jeans. Or, oh, I just just must have that pink polka polka dot-colored shirt. They want to draw you in. 
images grab our attention, don't they? And that's what we see initially in these verses in chapter 3. We see a strange image, something quite extraordinary. We were thinking about it earlier on. Moses has been away from Egypt for 40 years and has evidently settled into life, hasn't he? Where he is, he's, he's working hard for his father-in-law in verse 1 uh, as a shepherd. And he has taken his flock on a considerable journey from Midian uh, and arrives at Horeb, another name for Sinai, the mountain where God would appear later in Exodus to Moses and the people. But something, uh, as he's there, strange happens. An incredibly unique sight is seen. It's a burning bush, but one that does not burn up. Now, in, I'm told that in desert regions, it's not uncommon for, for a dried up bush to burst into flames. But this is different. Moses would probably have seen that before. But he hasn't seen this before. He hasn't seen a bush that burns, but keeps burning and is never consumed. And this intrigues Moses, so he decides that he's going to go and give it a look. Verse 3. But as we see in the passage, the explanation for this strange happening is that not, there's, no, there's not some sort of strange biological explanation for it. Rather, what we see here is that the angel of the Lord is making an appearance, verse 2. Now, there's some debate among scholars over what the angel of the Lord is, and I'm not going to bore you with that debate. But but safe to say that the text makes it abundantly clear that whatever we might think, it is unmistakably the Lord who speaks to Moses in verse 4. The Lord has in some way appeared to Moses and is speaking to him. He is making himself known from this strange image. And as we see the Lord introduce himself to Moses, we see two things about the Lord that are emphasized. Firstly, the Lord is holy. We see this in verse 5 where Moses is told that where he stands is holy ground. For this is where the holy Lord is making an appearance to Moses, when we speak of what it means to be holy in the Bible, we are firstly speaking of being set apart, of being distinct. The Lord is distinct. He is not the same as us. And secondly, when we're speaking of holiness, we are speaking of purity, of moral purity. There's nothing in the Lord that could ever be seen as sin. The Lord is perfect. He is pure. He is holy. So for us to say that the Lord is holy is to say, as one writer has put it, that as the infinite and pure one, he stands apart from his sinful creation. This is the Lord who hears our cries and who will act in response. And the second thing we see about the Lord as he appears to Moses is that he is the God of the covenant, verse 6. We've seen this already in chapter 2, verse 24, but we see it again here with God making it abundantly clear to Moses that he is the God who made promises, covenant promises, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the God who keeps covenant, who keeps his promises to his people. And as if we were to think back to Genesis 15, we see very clearly that God is acting as he has promised already. In Genesis 15, we read this. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. 
But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. So the Lord, many years before, has laid this all out. And the time has now come for the Lord to act for his people. Moses and his readers are to understand this. The Lord God has not been foiled by the Egyptians. It is not a detour of God's plan that somehow these people are facing this sorrow. No, this is all, hard though it may be to understand, according to plan. And this is the next step in God's covenant plan. I wonder how you might respond if you had been listening to the Lord speak to you like this. Many of us, I suppose, might feel that we'd received a great compliment that the Lord God, the Holy One, the Covenant Lord, has decided to speak to me. We might think that we're really special, mightn't we? He's not chosen to speak to everybody. He's chosen me. I must be special. I must be particularly good. We might feign humility in company. But I wonder if that, that sort of arrogant thinking might be the default setting for many of us here. But Moses reacts very differently, doesn't he, in verse 6. He hides his face, for he was afraid to look at God. There's no arrogance on display. Instead, there's a realization of who he is and who God is. God is the holy, covenant-keeping God. And who is Moses? Well, he is like us. He is a creature faced with his creator. He is a sinner faced with the fiery, hot purity of the holy God. He knows who he is, that he has no right to look upon God. He knows who he is, and he knows who God is. And as one great figure in the church once said, this is the beginning of wisdom. We need to know who God is, and we need to know who we are. For we won't get far in the Christian life, will we? Until we spend some time carefully thinking about who God is and who we are. And as we do so, as we ponder this interaction between, on the one hand, Moses, a sinner just like us, a man who is rebellious, who is not holy, and on the other, the holy God of covenant. I think we must come to see, shouldn't we, that as God makes himself known, as he enters into this narrative, as he appears on the stage, so to speak, of the story of Exodus, he doesn't do so because Moses is wonderful, or that God's people were wonderful, or worthy of deliverance. No, God does so because of his sheer grace, his unmerited favor towards Moses and his people. He doesn't say that his appearing is because of their good behavior in Egypt. In fact, far from it. In Ezekiel chapter 20, we hear that God's people in Egypt were idolaters. They worshipped idols in Egypt. They were not good covenant people. But God, out of his grace, out of his covenant faithfulness, has appeared to Moses. He has made himself known to Moses out of his grace. And 
today God has made himself known to us by his grace. He has made himself known most clearly in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. We hear that at the start of the book of Hebrews. And in Scripture, we find this revelation written down for us. We have God's perfect revelation of who he is to us. In this book, the Bible, God reveals himself to us. If we will only have eyes to see and ears to hear what he says. But once the Holy Covenant Lord has made himself known to Moses, well, what does he say? Well, in our final point, we see in verses 7 to 10 that he will save by his Savior. He will save by his Savior. Now, identity only gets you so far, doesn't it, in life? Maybe you've managed to get a job interview in the past due to your identity as your father or mother's son or daughter because the person who's interviewing you happens to be a friend of the family. Maybe you've had some other benefit because of who you are and what family you're part of. We might have connections that get us jobs, job interviews rather, but what gets us the job isn't the connection. What gets us the job is how we perform in the interview, isn't it? Or maybe we might be well thought of by people. People might think, oh, so-and-so is such and such his son. He must be a good egg. He must be a top bloke or a great girl. But that opinion will only last as long as we act in such a way that merits that opinion. And the reverse can be true as well. Um, I have a younger sister called Megan. And um, when she had her first math, math lesson at school, in secondary school, she was sitting in a, cl- a class, and I'm not going to name the teacher, because in case he listens to my online sermons, which is doubtful. But this teacher um, was reading out the register on her first day at secondary school, and he, he said, Megan Cloakey, are you Sean Cloakey's sister? And she said, yes. And he said, sit at the front. <laughs> now, that may say more about me than my dear sister. But her identity was seen as, oh, she's Sean's sister. Well, she's going to be trouble. And I trust that in good time, she showed that she was a far better student than I was and a far better behaved one. Identity is important, but it only gets us so far, doesn't it? How we act, what we do matters. So what about God? We've seen who he says he is. We have learned part of his identity, but what will he do? Well, in these verses, we see that he will save. He is the holy covenant-keeping Lord, and he will save his people, and he will do so by his Savior. As the Lord speaks to Moses, we again, don't we, have a repetition in these verses, in verses 7 to 10, of the themes that we've already touched upon. The Lord wants Moses to know, because of course he wouldn't have known already, that the Lord does know his people's suffering. He has heard their cry He has seen their oppression. We see this in both verse 7 and then verse 9. There's a sort of repetition. 
And then after each of those statements, we see something about God's salvation in verse 8 and then in verse 10. Firstly, we see what God is going to do, and then we see how he's going to do it. And in verse 8, we see that God will firstly deliver them out of Egypt. He will take them up out of Egypt, and he will bring them to the promised land, a land that is plentiful, flowing with milk and honey, a broad and good land. A land, of course, that's populated by others. We have this long list, don't we, of peoples that are there. And we can infer, can't we, that God will also, having taken them out of Egypt, he will put them in this land and he will clear the land so that they can have the land. As he's delivered them from Egypt and the Egyptians, he will win victory for them in the promised land. From one land to the next, defeating enemies at both ends delivering his his people from sorrow and slavery to a good and broad land of plenty. It's a wonderful picture, isn't it, of salvation. Two extremes, down in the pit, up to a glorious and beautiful land. We couldn't imagine, I suppose, a greater contrast. Slavery to plenty. But how will God do this delivering? And we see this in verse 10. He will do so by his saviour, this man Moses, who the narrative is focused on, will be his saviour. He will be the chosen instrument of God's salvation. He will lead God's people out of slavery and will take them to this broad and good land. He will take them to the border, rather, of the promised land. And that's quite remarkable, isn't it? Here is a man who is afraid to speak with God, because he knows his sin. Here's a man who's probably one of the, the least likely people to pick to be God's savior. He's, he's an exile. He's not with the people. And he's never really been one of the people, has he? He's always been, he was in the, he was in the, he was in the palace for most of his life. He might not have been thought of, oh, he's the obvious choice. He's the natural leader in the people. But this is the one through whom God promises to save his suffering people. This is God fulfilling his promise. He will save by his appointed Savior. God has heard, he has seen, he knows, he makes himself known. And he will save according to his covenant promise. And he will do so by his Savior. And as the first generation of hearers, I suppose, would have heard this story as this would have been relayed to them, they no doubt would have taken much comfort. Although their ancestors suffered much in the land, they could see that God had heard, that God had seen, that he saved and delivered by his Savior. So whatever they faced, whatever was ahead, they knew that they had a God who heard, who saw, who made himself known, who saved. But as we look on at this narrative, as very different people in a very different situation, this isn't just a narrative for for those folk back then. These are as much our people as you, as the folk in this room. But this is a narrative that points us to the greater salvation we have in Jesus Christ. 
We spoke earlier on about sorrows and struggles. Uh, and in, in sorrows and struggles in this life, we have many, but our greatest struggle in life is that with sin, isn't it? Whether we're rich, whether we're poor, whether we have been privileged in many material ways in life or not, each one of us faces the great struggle with sin, the great enslaver, the one in whom we are held in bondage. Indeed, all our struggles and sorrows find their root, don't they, in sin. And that first sin that cast the world under the curse. There would be no pain, no sickness, no relational breakdown, no sorrow, no death. If we didn't live in a fallen, sin-sick world. Yet God in his grace saw, heard, knew of our great struggle and our great sorrows because of our sin and he acted according to his covenant promise he promised salvation through his savior not Moses this time but the Lord Jesus Christ the one who is the complete revelation of God to man the one who knows our sorrows is acquainted with our griefs he was made like us. Yet unlike Moses, he was without sin. He did not cower in fear of the Lord, but the Lord proclaimed that Jesus was his son in whom he was well pleased. For some, Jesus, seen from the world's perspective, was an unlikely candidate for the office of Savior. He was a nobody from the backwaters unimpressive but that is what he was and what he is for he accomplished that salvation in his death and resurrection where he defeated our great enemy sin where he bore the punishment we each deserve for our rebellion and sin against God and this salvation will be brought to completion when he comes again to usher in the new creation when we will be brought into that greater land of plenty, that greater, broad, and good land flowing with far greater things than milk and honey, where his people will live forever without the blight of living in a sin sick world. This is what God's people, those who trust in his Savior Jesus, can look forward to. This is what we know has been achieved in the past. And will be brought to be in the future. That despite none of us deserving it. We have a God who knows. Who has made himself known. Who sees. Who acts. According to his words. To save us from our sin. And will save completely. And will bring us to that good and broad land of plenty where we will be with him forever where death will, will have no hold where there will be no slavery and no bondage to sin and knowing these truths knowing that God hears that he reveals that he saves 
Holding fast to these truths is how we get perspective in this life. In the midst of our sorrows and struggles, which are many and varied, all of which stem from sin, we can know that God has heard. He does know, he does see. He has acted and he has a plan to save through his Savior. As we face these sorrows and struggles, we can keep trusting God. For we know that in the end, these sufferings, as the Apostle Paul said, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For God has a plan in his Son to deliver us and take us to his better land where we will live with him forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice to know that you know our sorrows. You hear our cries. We rejoice that you have made yourself known to us in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have revealed who you are to us. The God who saves by his Savior who saves us from the bondage of sin and promises us a wonderful land, a wonderful promised land, a new creation where we will dwell with you forever. We pray, Heavenly Father, in the midst of our sorrows and sufferings, our difficulties in this life, in this sin-sick world, we would hold fast to these core truths we would remind ourselves that as we pray you hear that you do speak in your word of who you are and that you have a glorious salvation plan for all those who trust in Christ Jesus. Help us to do this, each one of us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.